I like to present things in a simple way, but that I hope will make a deep, profound impact. And I want to share three things with you today about marriage that I think are critical about marriage. And if I can say, even if you're not married in the room, I believe that these three things you can apply to almost any area of your life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of spill the beans on my whole sermon right up front and kind of let it all out right now and tell you what these three, three things are. Number one, in order to succeed at just about anything in life, including marriage, you need a good model. You have to have a good picture of what marriage looks like or what anything looks like for that matter. Number two, in addition to a good model, you have to have the right muscle. You have to have the right strength. Would you agree that marriage takes a lot of strength? And would you agree that anything worth anything accomplishing in life takes a lot of strength and a lot of muscle? So we've got to have the right model. We have to have the right muscle. And then lastly, we have to have the right motivation. And again, with anything in life, if you have any one of these three, if you have the right model but no muscle and no motivation, you're going to have an ideal, idealistic view of life and you're never going to really accomplish anything because you don't have the muscle and you don't have the motivation. If you've got the right motivation but not the right muscle and the right model, you're going to have a lot of passion but that passion isn't going to go anywhere. And in order to succeed at anything in life, and again, as we're going to talk about today, hopefully clearly and concisely, in order for you to succeed at marriage, you have to have the right model, you have to have the right muscle, and you have to have the right motivation. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to apply those to your marriage today. Let's start out by talking about what the right model for marriage is? Where do we find a good model for marriage? Can we look to culture? Can we look to society? Can we look to the last three shows that we watched on Netflix this past week for a good model of marriage? Probably not. And if we think about culture and society's impact on the model of marriage over the past 150 or 200 years, I think statistics speak loud and clear to how culture is impacting the model of marriage. If we look at the percent of people that are just getting married from the 1800s until the 1980s, it stays about consistent. It's an interesting fact, like again, from the 1800s until about the 1980s, the average percent of people that get married is consistent. But if you look at the amount of people that get divorced from the 1800s to the 1980s, that rate increasingly gets more and more over the years. It's a, it's a startling statistic. But then in 1980, something interesting happened the divorce rate started to go down. But what also went down, and I believe because of culture and because of society's influence on our model of marriage, is the number of people that are getting married also went down. People are freaking out. They saw their parents go through a rough marriage. They have some friends who their parents were divorced. And again, society, marketing, now social media. I mean, it's influencing our view of marriage. And the the, the bottom line is that people really don't value marriage like they once did. And therefore, less people are getting married and more people are getting divorced. And we have to understand that culture and society's influence are absolutely eating away at God's model for marriage. To deny that 
if I can be somewhat speaking the truth and love to you this morning, you're just naive. Culture is influencing your model of marriage, and it's not just influencing your model, it is causing your behavior in marriage and your thoughts about marriage to change. Take a look at how culture and Christ are competing against each other in marriage. I'm just going to rattle off a few. So culture says marriage should be easy. But what does Christ say? Christ says that marriage is going to be difficult. 1 Corinthians 7.28 says those who marry will face many troubles in this life. That's truth from God's word. We think that marriage is going to be easy, and God's word competes with that and says you will experience trouble. If you grew up in a home where your parents maybe had the idealistic marriage or maybe where you never saw them fight, you might go into your marriage thinking that marriage is going to be easier than what you experience. And then what's going to happen? When you experience the inevitable troubles of marriage, you're going to think that something is wrong with your marriage, when in fact, what Christ says is marriage is producing exactly what it's supposed to produce, and that's trouble. And I know that's a sobering thought, but I'm going to talk about that more in just a second so you can see God's heart and God's purpose for this. I mean, Star and I went into marriage, and we, we had a dysfunctional life coming into marriage, but there was something in us that thought that, that love was all that it was going to take for us to make things work. We had this feeling of love, and we thought that feeling of love was going to get us through. And lo and behold, 18 months into our relationship, when that feeling of love started to hit a dip or hit a valley, that's when we started to respond accordingly. We thought something was wrong with our marriage, and so what were we tempted to do? To bail. Well, this marriage must not be God's plan. But we didn't understand that by God's design, we were experiencing trouble so that he could produce something in us. I've heard it said this way, that one of the reasons marriage is so hard is because we go into it thinking that marriage is going to be so easy. We have to count the cost. If you're sitting in the room and, and you're single and you're considering marriage, know that you will experience trouble in that relationship. And it doesn't mean that something is wrong with you or something is wrong with your spouse. It's by God's design so that he can reveal what's wrong with you and make what's wrong right so that you and your spouse can have a healthy relationship. And I'll speak more to this. It, with this cultural statement, culture also says that marriage solves our problems and it should make you happy. But Christ says that marriage is first designed to make you holy. Listen to what Romans 8, 28, and 29 says. It says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. It's a verse that we love to quote, but I think we have... We have a misunderstanding oftentimes of what the good is that God wants to accomplish. Verse 29 explains it. We typically don't read 28 with 29, but let me share what verse 29 says. It says, for those God foreknew, he also pre predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the good that God wants to accomplish in verse 28, in verse 29 he defines it as being conformed to the image of his son. We don't like to think about God's goodness that way, but that's one of the things that he's up to in your life. It's one of the things that he's up to in your marriage. 
And it's one of the things that he's been up to since the very beginning of time. We could think of it this way, that the whole storyline of Scripture is that God created everything perfect, man messed it up, and that from Genesis 3 to the very end of the book of Revelation, God is in the business of making all things new, making what was messed up right. And he's doing that for you in this day in your relationship with your spouse to make you right, to make you more like him. Again, I didn't understand this going into marriage. Star didn't understand this going into marriage. We had things that we were wrestling with pre-marriage. And we looked to our marriage to be the thing that solved all of those problems for us. And so when those problems started to rear their ugly head in our relationship, 12, 18, 24 months in, we started to think that something was wrong with the relationship and it led us to want to bail. And again, we didn't understand that God was revealing what was wrong to give us an opportunity to make it right. Marriage doesn't solve problems. Marriage reveals how deep and the extent that the problems really are. And so again, culture says that marriage solves our problems, but Christ says is that marriage is first designed to make you holy. What about this cultural statement? Culture says that marriage should be 50-50 or a partnership or even a contract. But what does Christ say? Christ says that marriage is a covenant. Malachi 2.14 says that the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have had dealt with treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Again, this idea of a partnership and it being 50-50 and a contract sounds good because really what it says at the end of the day is you do your part and I'll do mine. And as long as do your part, I'm going to do my part. But the problem with that is applied into the relationship of marriage, very few times are Star and I giving 50% or giving equally. In fact, if you're married, you know this, that usually somebody's on and somebody's off. And if we only love each other in response to how we're being loved, and if we have a contract mentality to marriage, I got to tell you, you and I would have legitimate grounds for divorce within the first week of our relationship. But again, marriage is a covenant. It looks like two people giving 100%, 100% of the time. What about this cultural statement? Love is all you need. It sounds good. There have been songs that have been written about it. But again, Christ says is that he is all we need. It's a radical difference, right? 2 Peter 1.3 says this. His divine power has given us everything we need. Everything for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. Again, I spoke to this earlier. Star and I were naive in thinking that love was going to get us through. Interesting fact, the feeling of love is the number one reason that people get married. But it's also the lack of a feeling of love is the number one reason why people get divorced. And so what happens when love ebbs and flows? If we have this idea that love is all you need, then we're going to have this tainted view of marriage, this tainted belief of marriage that's going to lead us to look somewhere else for that love. When God, by design, is saying it's two people helping each other, supporting each other, and loving each other. By the way, when your spouse least deserves it. I heard it said this way one time, that love does its best work in an undeserving environment. 
Your spouse needs your love the most when they deserve it the least. And we know this to be true, that love does its best work in an undeserving environment because of some of the songs we were singing earlier. As we think about Christ's love for us and how we were so undeserving and when our eyes were open to how undeserving we are and that Christ loves us still, it does something in us. In fact, it's been doing something in people since the beginning of time. And we sing and we worship because of that undeserved love today. So again, love is not about just meeting, about love is not all you need in marriage. Christ says that I am all you need. And we could go on and on. But at the end of the day, as we talk about what a good model for marriage is, we talk about all these principles of love and covenant and versus a contract and Christ being all we need. The person who is responsible for all of these things being true is who? It's Jesus. So at the end of the day, like as we talk about where do we look for a good model of marriage, it's Jesus. We have to look to him. We have to look to his life when he came here. How did he love? What did he sacrifice? How much did it cost? What did it look like for him to forgive? That's the model that we need to pursue is Jesus. So how would your marriage be different if you pursued, believed this model, and if you pursued that model? I got to tell you, if, if, if I would have pursued this model perfectly this last week in my marriage, my life would have been easier. It would have been better. My marriage would have been more intimate. But again, for you, the question is the same. What would your life look like? How would it be different? How would your marriage be different if you pursued this model? And so the problem, again, is we have culture speaking all of these lies. And then we have what I just shared with you, which I think you know to be true. It's not rocket science what I'm sharing, but unless we understand culture's influence and unless we do something to resist culture's influence on us, guess what? Slowly but surely, week by week, show after show, media outlet after media outlet, every Facebook post, Instagram post that we see, we're going to look up 10, 15, 20 years down the road and see that we don't really believe this as much, but we're really more adopting culture's mentality of marriage. So we have to be indoctrinated, inebriated with this truth. That's why this discipline of spending time in God's word is so important because our minds don't naturally think like this. We have to resist that drift of culture and renew our minds daily so that we can accept these things, believe these things, and not just believe them, but live out of that belief. So I know that this model is a high bar. And I got to tell you, even as I preach it, it's overwhelming. And that's why not only do we need the right model, but we got to have the right muscle. So what is the right muscle for marriage? Well, first, let me tell you what doesn't work. What type of muscle doesn't work is a to-do list. Look, I'm a list guy. I've got a list for myself in my personal tasks. I've got a list for my family. I've got a list for my business. I've got a list for my kids. I've got a budget spreadsheet by tab with everything that my kids need to do financially. I love lists. But if I've learned anything about a list is there's no power in a list. I can have list after list after list, and they could be perfect in order of priority and also the amount of time that it's going to take me to accomplish those things. But at the end of the day, I've just got to do these things. This gets me organization, but that organization doesn't lead to 
implementing the list and, and actually execution. And so there's no power in a list. Let me tell you what other muscle doesn't work is doing spiritual things. And this might surprise you, and as glad as I am that you're here this morning, and as I'm glad as you do some of these spiritual disciplines of the faith, such as maybe attending a group or a Bible study or even reading your Bible, those things are important. But at the end of the day, they are a means to an end of acknowledging the power. There's not power in coming to church. Church is a means to renew your mind of what's true so that you can go acknowledge the power and apply that power in your everyday life. Again, so hear me. Keep coming to church. Keep reading your Bible. But understand that that's not the goal. There's a passage in Galatians that I read a couple years ago and have likely read before, but it just stood out. And it says this, that the only thing that counts... Pay attention to the language. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love. And again, church is a means of increasing our faith. But at the end of the day, if we don't leave here doing anything different or acting different or loving people different, then this isn't really for anything. It needs to lead to us doing something. And so, again, spiritual things are important, but it doesn't represent the ultimate muscle that we need to make marriage work. Or what about this one? I love this one for myself. I love lists, and I love my own self-effort because I'd like to think that I'm a pretty strong, capable, competent guy. And whenever I was first getting started in marriage, I had this pull-up-my-bootstrap mentality. I knew the things that I needed to do. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew I needed to go to church. I knew I needed to do this Bible study. And I, left, I was left to my own strength. I thought that I could accomplish in my own strength everything that I needed to do. But at the end of the day, my own effort, as the book of Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. I can't, we, like on my best possible day, I can't do the things that I need to do. The Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked. But the beauty of the muscle that you're well aware of and I'm getting ready to share is that even though we're weak in our weakness, that's where God's strength can be made strong. Again, the early days of my marriage, grew up in church and I thought that I was a Christian. In fact, so much so that I thought that my wife, who did not grow up in a Christian home, needed to go to this discipleship class so that she could get saved and understand this Jesus stuff. And so her and I ended up being the only people in this discipleship class with our pastor. We went to a really small church, and I'll never forget hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel, not just here, but here, as if it was for the very first time. I had heard about Jesus and forgiveness of sins and spending eternity with him in heaven. But for some reason, in that discipleship class, about six months into my marriage, God turned the lights on to my faith. And that's when I really went into pull up my bootstrap mode because I realized what God had done for me. And I'm like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But again, in and of my own strength. And those problems that I brought into marriage that I mentioned, and they started to rear their ugly head again in marriage about 18 months in. I pulled up my bootstraps and I tried to fix it on my own. And guess what? It didn't work. I experienced temporary change. And when I messed up, I'd be on my knees. Star, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. But it was this cycle, this up and down. God, I'm doing good. God, I'm not doing good. 
God, I'm doing good. God, I'm not doing good. It was this endless roller coaster. And to a certain degree, that's what change looks like all the time. But here's the problem with my trajectory of change is that my highs weren't getting any higher and my lows were getting lower. So really the trend line of my change was not up and to the right. It was looking this way. And what I needed is I need God's power in my everyday moments of marriage so that my highs could be higher and my lows could be higher and my trend line of change would be up and to the right. And see, I understood the gospel of forgiveness and I also understood the gospel of eternity, but what I missed was the gospel of the now. As Luke mentioned before, the the season that we all live in between the already and the not yet. It's what we do between these two things that is of the utmost of importance. Going back to that passage in Galatians, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what is this muscle that I speak of? It's the all-powerful Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus had to come in order for the Spirit to come to indwell our hearts with this power so that we could live the life that he's called us to live. I was missing that. I, I knew about the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan wrote, wrote a book a while back, and he, the title of his book is called The Forgotten God. And the reason I think his title is accurate and appropriate for our culture is because I think a lot of Christians, well-meaning Christians, they are missing the gospel of the now. They understand the gospel of forgiveness for sin, and they understand that one day they're going to be in heaven, but in between, they're, they're living like hell. And by the way, not by choice. They, they're, they're banging their fist on the table. They're banging their heads against the wall. They're buying every self-help book known to man about communication or addiction. And it's because they're missing the all-powerful Spirit of God applied in the everyday moments of life. And I believe that part of God's purpose behind our marriage problems, and by the way, any of our problems in life, is to help us recognize our dependency on Jesus in the everyday moments of life. And can I say, not just the big moments. As I talk about the all-powerful Spirit of God, it, we just don't need his help for the, that addiction to alcohol or that struggle with depression or maybe that addiction to rage or drugs or whatever your struggle might be or the, or the big fight that you had with your spouse. No, remember, our best attempts on our best day are like filthy rags to God. And so we need the all-powerful spirit of God for those coffee-making, back-rubbing, like take-the-trash-out kind of days. Because I don't know about you, but there are a lot of days where I don't feel like back-rubbing or taking trash out or coffee-making. It's not my nature, and it's not yours either. Any good thing that you want to do, any good thing that you've ever done, the Bible says in James, it's a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift is from him. And it's in those moments that we need the all-powerful spirit of God to give you the muscle to love. So what does this look like? Number one, we got to believe it. We have to believe that what God's word says is true and that when we receive Christ, when we believe in our heart and declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are sealed with the all-powerful Spirit of God. 
Again, the same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We have to believe it. Number two, we have to ask for his help. We have to, again, in response to our needing God in our everyday moments of struggle, God wants us to cry out to him and to ask him for help. I want to read a passage in 1 John that I think highlights this. And I love this passage. I love this promise. It says this, 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked him. I got to tell you, if God, everything that Jesus went through to give the Holy Spirit to us, the sacrifice that he made, leaving a perfect heaven to come to a sin-filled earth and to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death, that had to happen for the Spirit of God to come. And he, does, he did that so that we would have access to this all-powerful spirit. And how sad is it? How sad must God be that everything that he gave to give us this all-powerful spirit, and then we walk around life trying to pull up our bootstraps and do life in and of our own strength. I believe it grieves God's heart. He's like, Hans, I've given you this help, my very presence, my very power, my very peace, and you're trying to go live as if I don't exist? Hans, there's so much more available to you just for the asking. Again, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, if we ask anything according to his will, don't you think that the Holy Spirit, being, us being filled with the Holy Spirit, is according to his will? Absolutely. One of my kids several years ago approached me with a struggle that they were having. A struggle that they were having for several years of their teenage life. And Star and I were talking uh, to this child and it grieved me as they shared what they were struggling with. It brought my wife and I both to tears. But you want to know what I was also saddened by? is that they had to go through it alone. They had confessed this struggle for years, unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to my wife. And my heart, as sad as I was for this child, my heart was deeply saddened that they had to go through it alone. And I believe that you and, and I, as we try to live our life alone, God is saying, come to me. Like, I want to help you. I can help you. Believe that the all-powerful spirit is available to you. Conf ask for help when you need it. Confess when you don't get it right. So the muscle, undeniably, the undeniably strong muscle that we need in our marriages and in life is the all-powerful spirit of God. So the model comes from Jesus. The muscle comes from Jesus. And last, the key to building a healthy, vibrant marriage is in the right motivation for marriage. And I got to tell you, I believe a lot of people in the room understand what to do in marriage. They understand the model. And I also believe that most Bible-believing people understand their need for the all-powerful spirit to help them in their marriage. But my question is this. If we'll say that the largest majority of the people in the room believe the model and believe the muscle 
then why are you still struggling the way that you're struggling? And I'll just make this personal. Why do I at times struggle when I know these things? I live, eat, teach, and breathe this stuff, and I still struggle. And again, let me be clear. The goal is not perfection. That will happen one day on the other side of heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about living a spirit-filled life that is growing in the right direction in response to our struggles in marriage. And I wholeheartedly believe it's because we lack the right motivation. We know what to do. We know the model. We even know where we need to go to get the strength to accomplish what God wants us to. But at the end of the day, our ought to doesn't match our want to. There have been times this past week where I've known what I've needed to do to love my wife, and I know where I need to go for help to get the strength to do it, but at the end of the day, I just don't do it. I'm embarrassed to tell you, but again, I I think we're all in the same boat to a certain degree, and you can fill in your circumstances as, as you need. And it's convicting, but at the end of the day, it's just I make this decision in my heart that I don't want to love God. I don't want to love my wife. The person who I want to love is really just myself. And it's because of my and yours, our sin nature. So all that to say, like, what should our motivation be? What should our why be? What should be our deepest motivation to do these things that God has asked us to do and have the willingness to ask God for help? Whenever we need it, I believe the answer is found in a passage in 2 Peter that I want to read for you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. I want you to listen to these words carefully. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, all these character qualities that I just read, from goodness to knowledge to self-control to perseverance to godliness and mutual affection and love, Like if there is a list of character qualities that we needed to make marriage work, like here's our list. And there's others in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. But again, this is a great start to to, uh, communicating, to laying out a model of what's needed to have a healthy marriage and a healthy life. But again, back to the question, if it's spelled out so clearly, why don't we do these things? I believe the answer is found in verse 9. Listen to what verse 9 says. But whoever does not have them, these character qualities, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgot that they have been cleansed from their past sins. That's why we don't do it. We forget. We forget who God says that we are. We forget the nature of our sin. We forget the nature of God's unconditional, undeserving love for us. And when we remember our position, that should humble us. And when we simultaneously remember that in spite of our position that we could do nothing about, 
that God stepped into our story and opened our eyes to the gospel and to his love, not only will it produce humility, it should produce gratefulness. It should produce this spirit, this idea of, Lord, I see my sin, and Lord, I see your love for me, and I want to raise my hands, and I want to sing songs to you, and I want to do these things. I want to be good to my wife. I want to be self-controlled. I want to have perseverance. I want to have everything that you tell me to. Why? Because you loved me first. 1 John 4 says it this way, we love because he first loved us. And so why do we struggle? I believe that we have identity amnesia, that we've forgotten who God says that we are. Our identity as sinners who are in desperate need of him, and he redefines that identity and he now calls us saints. I love my wife best whenever I realize God's love for me the most. When I, realize the gift that, when I realize the gift that God has given me, everything that he did, everything that he said, all the ways that he's provided for me, all the, way, all the things he's done, the, the sin that he's forgiven, the strength that he's given me, the family that he's given me, the blessings that he's given me, my heart wants to serve him. My heart wants to do everything that he tells me to do, and my heart wants to go wherever he calls me to go. That's part of the reason why I do this for a living. I didn't necessarily have this natural desire to speak into marriages. It's hard work, counseling couples, speaking. But God said, Hans, this is the call on your life, and I'm going to pursue it. I want you to pursue it. And why? Because of everything that I've done for you. So when we remember that we've been forgiven from our past sins, it should lead us to a place of humility. It should lead us to a place that understanding what we deserve. And at the end of the day, separate from Christ's love, separate from his grace, separate from his forgiveness, like we deserve a full cup of churning wrath because of our sin. And even if we were to have one ounce of blessing in response to what we deserve, it should be enough reason for us to say, God, I'm going to love you and serve you. But God gives you and he's given me so much more. He has taken on the full cup of wrath through Jesus. And he has said, not only am I not going to give you wrath, I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you a new identity. And I'm going to give you an eternal home that one day you can spend forever singing these songs to me and worshiping. So it should humble us. And again, this should lead us to be grateful. And what do grateful hearts do? They, they obey. They worship and they do what the gift giver tells them to do. And not out of duty, but out of this idea of being of this joy-filled obedience. So again, the key to this, the motivation is why. Let me, let me ask you this to illustrate this just one step further. If I had the ability to write every single one of you guys a check for $10 million, which I wish I had that ability, but I don't. I don't have the ability to write you a $500 check for crying out loud. But if I was able to do that, and next week I give any one of you guys a call, and I said, hey, would, would you mind taking me to the airport? You, you, you'd be like, I don't care where you were, what time of day, you'd say, yes, Hans, you name it. Like any time, you, you're, you're, you need a flight to Philadelphia, I'll drive you to Philadelphia. Why? You, you wouldn't do it begrudgingly. 
you, you would do it willingly because of the gift that I've given you. Friends, we've forgotten the size, the magnitude of the gift that we've been given in Jesus and his forgiveness. And when we remember, things will be different. Like that type of love, it changes people. And it has been changing people for generations. And he wants to change you with that today. For those of you that are saved and have that relationship, he wants you to remember and to focus on that, to give you motivation to continue to live this life, which, by the way, it's hard. And we need God's strength, and we need to be reminded of his goodness and his grace in our lives. For those of you that might not have a relationship with Christ, I, I beg you and implore you, I invite you, that God is knocking on your door and trying to make you aware of how deep and how wide and how high his love is for you. And he is asking. He is making you aware of this love in part through my words today, through him. And he's inviting you to bow a knee to him, to say yes to him, and to start this journey of becoming increasingly aware of his love for you. So you can have the muscle, you can have the motivation, and you can start to understand over time what the model of living a Christ-filled, spirit-filled life is. So at the end of the day, my message is simple. Like, what does it take to have a healthy, solid, vibrant marriage? It's Jesus. Like, the model's Jesus. The muscle's Jesus. And the motivation is Jesus. It really is all about him. It's not just some cliche of Christianity that sounds good. Practically, for coffee-making, back-rubbing, take-the-trash-out kind of days, and also for those harder days, on those addiction-filled days, on those depressed-filled days, like Jesus is the answer through these three means, giving us a model, giving us the muscle, and giving us a motivation. I want to close with one of my favorite one of my favorite passages of scripture that I hope will drive home the point and minister to your soul. It's in Isaiah 6, and I want to read this for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with Two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you picture that and what that must have been like? As Luke read in Revelation the only response is one of just falling to your face, prostrate in worship. Listen to how Isaiah responded. He said this. He said, woe is me. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God has to make us aware of our sin and how ruined we are without him. But thankfully, there's more to this passage. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, 
This has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And in response to Isaiah seeing the Lord, in response to Isaiah being confronted with his sin, and in response to that sin being atoned for and forgiven, Isaiah's response was this, here I am, send me. Like at the end of the day, that's what God is up to with each and every one of us every single moment of every single day is revealing who he is, revealing our need for him and seeing how he fills the gap. And he wants to define our why and say, and get us to a point of saying, here I am, send me. What would it look like in our marriages? What would it look like this afternoon on the way home if we had the mentality of these three things, awareness of God and awareness of our sin and how he filled in the gaps and we were willing to say, here I am, send me as you're driving south on 45 when somebody cuts you off. Your response would be different. Because as angry as that may make you at the surface, as you think about the glorious riches that you've been given in Christ Jesus, that little person cutting you off in that millisecond of a moment in time on a Sunday afternoon, it doesn't mean anything. And you're gonna, your eyes are going to be so fixed on Jesus that that's going to mean less to you and serving him is going to mean more. In the everyday moments of marriage where you don't feel like making your wife coffee or rubbing her back, babe, I'm sorry for not rubbing your back more, I mean, we're going to respond different. We just will. I believe, my, my life message is this, is I will preach, I will counsel, I will speak, I will write to communicate best I can, increasingly the best I can to communicate how deep and how wide and how high the love of God is. Because if we can get that, our lives will be different.